For the week of January 22nd, 2015, this is The Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. From Washington, D.C., I'm Green Tech Media Senior Editor Stephen Lacey. In this show, we will discuss a byproduct of the maturing and ever more competitive solar industry, solar loans. Then, President Obama gloated about the State of the Union's energy economy in his State of the Union address this week. We'll comment on his remarks. Lastly, we'll take a look at where solar jobs are growing in the U.S. and compare that to growth along the rest of the economy. At the end of the show, we will, of course, tell you something you do not know. With me in Washington... It's Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner at 38 North Solutions. And uh, speaking of the State of the Union address, Catherine, I'm assuming that's like your version of the Academy Awards in, in your household. <laughs> that is so sad. But yes, it's true. We definitely we watch uh, every and, and we with bated breath and we listen at, to every single word. Do you play uh, so too drinking games? No, <laughs> we're too old for that. But there are people certainly who do that. In New York City, it's clean tech investor and entrepreneur Jager Shaw. What's going on there in New York? Hey, you know, in my house, we actually watched the State of the Union as well, but we had butter popcorn. you got to have an alcoholic beverage with that as well. Oh, yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just to get through 60 minutes of the president talking. (laughs) That's right. It's like a five-minute speech and then, you know, 55 minutes of clapping. Yeah, although, you know, what's funny about how, um, like, I guess when he delivered that burn line, Within 45 seconds, there was a um, a meme on Twitter with him like in a in a pimp jacket and gold chains. And... <laughs> yeah, I usually uh, don't pay much attention to the president. I'm more uh, paying more attention to what Twitter is doing. So I know more about how successful the memes are than how successful the president was. <laughs> and speaking of memes, the the one on uh, Ernest Moniz was pretty great. We'll awesome. talk about. Uh, some more of that in the so too section of the podcast. But first, uh, we're going to talk to talk about something that is close to Jigger's heart: business model innovation. More specifically, the changes to solar financing options designed to make residential systems cheaper and easier to obtain. Last year, around two hundred thousand residential solar systems were installed in the U.S., and around seventy percent of those were third-party financed through leases or power purchase agreements. Those two models have helped rooftop solar explode and. In some states, they account for 90% of installations. But solar loans are gaining traction as costs come down and direct ownership gets more realistic. Uh, Banks, big solar service companies, uh, new financing startups, they're all developing loan products to help customers buy and not lease PV. And they are an increasingly popular option, but there are, of course, questions about how much traction loans will really get. Our guest, Sarah Ross, is the co-founder and CEO of one of those new entrants trying to uh, get solar loans to gain traction in this country, uh, is a company called SunGage Financial. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We've uh, met and chatted a number of times, and I only just found out that, uh, as I was doing research for the show, that you lent out your daughter's college savings in order to test the idea for your first loan product. Was, uh, Was that a tough decision to make? I uh, no, it wasn't. But yes, it is true, Stephen, that solar will put my daughter through college. So yeah, you know, every company has to start somewhere. And uh, SunGage was started after my husband and I went through the process of installing solar on our own home. 
we got a referral for a local installer who'd been selling this equipment for 10 years. Uh, you know, what this company couldn't do was provide any financing. So I called up one of the solar leasing companies who was active in Massachusetts at the time, um, got a quote for a system. And unfortunately for that solar leasing company, my husband and I spent a long romantic evening over Excel that night, backing out, you know, what turned out to be an astronomical cost of capital. And so, uh, you know, we actually got two things, clarity about how we wanted to pay for our solar energy system. And we, we got a business to build. So, um, so yeah, the very next thing I did was, was not to go raise a large fund for a new solar loan product that didn't exist, but I decided to loan out uh, our daughter's college funds so that I could really start to talk to consumers and, and work with installers. And so that's what I did for the next year was really play and experiment with how to design the right product for this market. All right, so how is this uh, sector evolving? A bunch of companies are providing loans now. You got um, a few banks really stepping in and creating solar-specific loans. Uh, you got the traditional solar service companies getting into this. Solar City now says about half of installations that this year could be financed through its loan product. We talked to uh, Lyndon Rive about that uh, a few months ago. So where does your loan stack up? Uh, what can consumers expect from that loan? And um, I know you can't really talk about volume, but how are you expanding into different states? Yeah, well, maybe, maybe first it makes sense to step back and really orient our listeners around that really the evolution that's gone on in loan options for solar, because I think that'll that'll be helpful kind of context. So, you know, really the the first thing that we had in this space uh, in terms of loans for solar was a real property-based loan. This is using the house as the collateral for a loan. You know, after all, solar was attached to the home, and so it seemed to make good sense. But that's the, the, the reality the traditional is, home equity loan. Yeah, or you know, the, the title one product that's out there. Um, the reality is that anytime you touch the home, quote unquote, real property, it's slow and costly to originate that product. And you know, frankly, we're unnecessarily constraining the market size. Um, because then there are restrictions on what consumers can take those products based on whether they have equity in their house or whether they already have a home equity loan. So that was really the first clunky approach to, you know, really deploying debt towards residential solar. So next we kind of threw off the shackles of the real property and the industry moved to unsecured lending. So unsecured lending is essentially a personal loan. It's not backed by any type of asset. Um, these loans are common in the home improvement space, and so a bunch of home improvement lenders got wind of the growth in solar and have been aggressively attacking this market opportunity. Um, you know, my concern with this approach is that I believe that in order to do solar lending well, you have to get smart on mitigating solar-specific risks, you know, installer performance risk, equipment risk, um, and so a really specific example of how unsecured lending for solar is actually dangerous for the industry, I think, um, is going to manifest in product features like payment terms for the installer. So bear with me while I give you one really specific example, because I, I think it'll really make this point clear. Um, so there are lenders out there who are doing this unsecured lending who are issuing 80% of funds directly to an installer before there are even materials at the job site. So as a homeowner, I've committed to pay back a loan. There's no material at my home, and the lender has put 80 cents on the dollar into the pocket of my contractor. That is a really irresponsible model, right? The badly behaving or about to be out of business installer loves it, um, but who's looking out for the consumer, 
right? So, so this is really bad for solar. I think when homeowners have bad experiences, they're going to tell their neighbors, their friends, their family, and solar, not just the lender or the specific installer, will get a black eye, right? So the next evolution is really important, and that's the evolution into true solar smart lending. Um, and that's, you know, I believe we were the first financing platform to really offer a solar loan secured by the system itself. Our team understands solar, and so we've been able to educate a set of really, you know, willing, capable, and responsible capital partners about how to do solar loans right, which means we worry about installer performance, we worry about system performance, we look at OEM warranties, we're taking the time to think about and devise strategies to mitigate these risks because we know this is the way to build a sustainable solar lending industry. So I think, you know, it's good for you to give us that background, Sarah, you and I have tussled on some of these issues in the past. I, you know, I, I think that the part that is most important to me is a little different, which is that when, when uh, Sunrun really started this movement back, you know, sort of in 07, um, that was truly a PPA for residential. Um, and when we switched to the lease, what we really did was convince residential customers to put their credit on the line. Um, and before we moved to lease, customers weren't actually offering their credit uh, they're guaranteed to pay back the loan, whether the system worked or not, until that point in time. And I think that's why there's so much excitement about loan versus lease, because um, because you've got an entire sector of the solar marketplace that makes sense to bankers, to the U.S. Treasury Department, to everyone else. Everyone gets credit. No one gets um, pay for performance. That's a foreign concept. Um, but credit-based lending is something that everyone understands. Oh, absolutely. And it's so much simpler. So when you think about the range of investors that we could attract to solar, if we had a simple debt product that was built around this concept of consumer credit, you know, we, we have a, a huge pool to pull from as opposed to, you know, tying the fate of the industry to a dozen or so tax equity investors. So I guess the other thing I was curious about, though, is that there really has been a movement in the residential uh, space around having captive funds, right? I mean, I think Solar City really was just trying to get multiple people on the same street to do solar at one time, right? That's what their business model in 07. Um, and it wasn't until they actually got a tax equity fund in place, uh, as well as Sunrun and Sunjavity and others, that they really took off like a rocket ship. And, you know, I think that led to huge market share gains and consolidation in residential. But I'm curious from you as to whether you think that we're actually headed towards sort of a democratization of finance. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think we are. I mean, the moment that uh, we have multiple lenders kind of competing to fund solar loan portfolios and that models like ours can put these financing options in the hands of a wide range of installers, then, yeah, we're going to see a huge democratization of, of, uh, of finance in the solar space. And then that, that's really going to change the landscape dramatically. But are we there yet? I mean, you know, if, 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 if you're a solar installer and you're listening to our, you know, our show, you know, do you have two or three finance providers fighting over your business? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we do not have a finance problem, residential solar, as I'm sure you would agree. We have a sales and marketing problem. 
right? So yes, they're absolutely, installers now have choice among financing products and they're going through the process right now. It, it, it has all happened fairly quickly, but they are all now going through the process of tasting these different new financing options and figuring out which works best for their business and for their customers, right? And so, you know, I think they're looking, or if I was an installer, I'd be looking for a few things as I'm evaluating these different options. Um, you know, one is how consumer friendly is the product, right? Um, if you're a business who's built off of, uh, you know, getting leads through word of mouth and referrals, like you want to make sure the products that you're selling are good. And so that when the, that customer is happy, they refer their neighbor. So how simple is it really? And loans veer into consumer unfriendly ways in basically three areas. And it's, you know, how does the, the product handle the tax credit and kind of the, the, the challenges there? You know, are there inflators baked into the loan like there are with, with some products? Um, what are the payment terms to the installer, as I mentioned before? And, you know, how is kind of so-called O&M handled, right? Is there any kind of price transparency around the value of that part of the service? Um, can you unbundle that? So, you know, I, I look at cons how consumer friendly the product is. If I was an installer, I would be looking at um, the experience of the entity that's going to be handling the servicing, right? So who's going to be collecting payments for my customer over 10 years? Are they reporting, you know, to the credit bureaus so that this consumer can build up a credit history? Uh, the experience is really important there. And then the last piece is, is flexibility, right? So um, consumers are thinking about solar in different ways. If, uh, you know, consumers down in Southern Connecticut, uh, more financially sophisticated consumers might be thinking about this from a ROI perspective. Others are thinking savings. Um, so we really need different types of products, different term products um, to, cons to meet those different consumer preferences. And so flexibility should be key for these installers when they're, when they're picking a product. Sarah, um, I wanted to touch on one of the issues that you raised, which is the investment tax credit. Um, it expires in 2016, of course, on the residential side, uh, Section 25D goes to zero. On the commercial side, uh, Section 48 goes to 10%, but that's mostly the third-party financing folks. Um, what is this going to do to uh, your market, the loan? Do you think the market will adjust, or do you think we need some other kinds of tax solutions? How do you think that's going to play? First of all, I'm so glad, Catherine, that you made that distinguished, <laughs> you distinguished between 25D and the other tax credit that's, that's for the commercial space. That's a really important distinction. I think a lot of people are, are missing that reality that um, for the solar leasing companies, they will go down to 10%. Uh, for a homeowner-owned system, it will go down to 0%. So, I mean, I think the first question for people in Washington is, you know, do we want to stack the deck again in this way, right? It was, it was stacked earlier on in the history of this tax credit when there was a cap. Uh, if you were a residential owner of a system, you could only get up to, I believe it was $3,000, um, while it was the full 30% if you were a commercial owner of a system. So the, the deck was stacked way back when, and the question is, do, do policymakers in D.C. want to stack the deck again? Um, so that, that's a good first issue to kind of clarify there. Uh, the second, you know, your second point of kind of how will this affect the market for, for our model, and I can't speak for other people kind of attacking the, the loan space, it's purely a demand issue. And what I mean by that is the only question is, will solar continue to be compelling without the economics of the ITC, right? So it's not a problem from the capital kind of side of the business. And in fact, it'll be easier to source capital 
um, when I don't have to do it for both a term financing, for, in, in other words, for both a 10-year loan and, you know, kind of the short-term piece that I need to make this work for consumers to, to finance the tax credit. So the capital raising uh, process will actually be easier. The product design will be easier. The sales process will be simplified, which is, which is good for ownership and good for solar in general, since we're competing with the even simpler model of just staying with the utility, right? So from all that perspective, the tax credit going away is a good thing. So the only question that remains is, will solar remain a compelling proposition, right? And I think, uh, you know, Jigger's been preparing us for, uh, you know, selling solar when it's not about savings on day one, and it's, it's about the hedge, it's about independence, and it's about control. So, you know, we'll see kind of where the rest of the value chain gets, but that's really the only issue for the loan model is a, the much broader, bigger issue of is solar still a compelling value proposition. One of the things I'm trying to figure out, though, is there seems to be a lot of passion behind the loan versus lease debate, and I don't quite get it exactly. I mean, in the United States, you know, something close to 60% of Americans don't pay enough taxes to actually be able to use the, the tax credit. So, you know, the lease is sort of essential for those people, and then for the folks who actually do pay enough taxes to take the tax credit, the loan might be a better product. I mean, why do you think there's so much tension between the loan and the lease? And that's a really that's a really interesting question, and I'd love for you to sort of talk about the philosophical divide behind that as well. Yeah. So uh, first, I, I haven't looked at that math digger, but the sixty percent number. Um, you know, I think we'd have to look at the set of consumers that are going solar and, and look at kind of the distribution around income there. You know, you need basically an adjusted gross income, an AGI of over, say, you know, $70,000 household AGI to really take advantage of a, a typical size tax credit for, for solar. So, um, you know, that's, that's not a very, very, very high bar. And the fact that people can roll over and kind of take the tax credit out over multiple years um, means that even if you can't take it all in one bite, you can take it in a few bites. So I, I don't see monetization of the tax credit being an issue, a big issue for most of the homeowners that are going solar today. Um, as far as where the passion comes from, I mean, I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, it's easy to, uh, you know, to hate the big winners and the big players. And so there's, there's some of that going on. Frankly, I, I completely recognize that the solar loan stands on the shoulders of the solar lease. Absolutely. Uh, we, we educated our capital partners based on information that was, you know, publicly available around uh, default rates in solar cities portfolios and their kind of recovery ratios. That data has been critical to informing and educating future capital providers. So, you know, I am the first to admit and recognize the, the great service that that model has done for the development of this industry and the kind of firming up of the capital markets in particular. Um, so I think the other piece of this is choice, right? So installers are kind of in the middle. They're the ones that where, where the rubber really meets the road. And I think the approach of many solar leasing companies, because, you know, after all, they own these assets and they have to, you know, look over those assets and make sure that they're good assets that are being built, you know, they have to be fairly prescriptive about how these installers do their work. And I don't think these installers like it very much, right? So, so I think that's the other issue is, is from an industry perspective, when we talk about it, I don't think the installer landscape, um, you know, I think they'd like to see more choice and be able to accommodate more choice for consumers. There are other examples from other industries. And when we talked before, we discussed uh, 
the auto industry. And, you know, you said you think of yourself more as a financial provider helping uh, Toyota sell cars and dealerships, where in the auto industry, 80% of customers own vehicles uh, because of the financing options rather than leasing them. Uh, solar services firms see themselves more as like a cable provider or a satellite TV provider that owns the hardware and just delivers a service. Do you think that's a helpful way for people to think about it? Yeah, no, it, it's really a question of what consumers want, right? Do you want a solar utility, right? A kind of cheaper version of your current utility? Is that is that framework work for you? Is that the kind of relationship that you want to maintain with, with energy? Great. The solar leasing option is a wonderful option for you. It's a cheaper utility. So, what, I mean, what we're doing is a much more disruptive model, right? It's saying, no, I kind of reject the whole utility model in general, and I want to own this piece of equipment myself. I want to be in control, and I'm going to capture the, the upside of being an owner of that equipment, right? So it's a much more disruptive model, and so it depends on how consumers are, you know, what they really want out of this transaction. But that upside really comes with, this, with an equivalent amount of risk. I mean, if they have an inverter that fails and they don't notice for two or three months, they still have to pay because um, you're not actively monitoring all the systems for them, I'm assuming. And, um, and you know, if, if they actually do have to replace an inverter, they have to come out of pocket 5000 bucks to, to, to pay for that, right? And so, you know, or they have to deal with the inverter manufacturer and get whatever warranties are owed to them, whereas in a lease, you know, someone else would take care of that. Yeah, no. And, and can I jump in here? So Lynn, Lynn Jurich, the co-founder of Sunrun, has said that ownership adds thousands of dollars to the cost of a system because it places the burden of maintenance, obviously depending on the loan, the burden of maintenance on the customer. And, uh, you know, there's this debate about uh, where the cost lies. Do, do financing costs associated with lease raise the overall cost of the system for the customer? Do operations and maintenance costs raise the, the uh, overall system cost for the customer? So there's a lot. there could be a lot of confusion here for people looking at these different products. Uh, absolutely. And so, you know, my whole thing is let's be honest about these costs. Let's be, you know, let's try our best to mitigate risks in these areas and let consumers decide. Consumers are big boys and girls and they can choose what works best for them, right? But the kind of forced bundling of so-called O&M, right, is, is not pro-consumer choice, right? So, you know, another way of framing what SolarCity is doing is they're uh, forcing consumers to prepay for 20 years of repairs. When I say it that right. way, it doesn't sound so much like a consumer benefit, does it? Oh, I if, think it's if, an enormous consumer benefit because by actually forcing consumers to prepay for O&M, you actually get the 30% tax credit on it and the accelerated depreciation. If I was a consumer, I don't want to. I don't want to prepay for my inverter replacement now. I'll go into the market at that time and purchase the piece of equipment that I need at that time. And my installer will help me do that, right? So this is all about giving consumers information and choice. That, that, that's, you know, you have that preference trigger and that's great. Others may have other preferences. And, and my issue is that the, the lease model has coupled and forced the coupling of equipment choice, how we handle repairs, um, and the financing all in one. And when consumers own these assets themselves, they can decide how to move through these decisions in a way that makes sense for them. So um, in terms of the origination side, you know, what do you think it's going to take for the U.S. solar marketplace to catch up to places like 
the UK or Germany or even Australia in terms of origination. I mean, we have, I think, only about 200,000 solar systems that were done last year. Um, and, you know, Australia did 250,000 solar systems last year. Now right, they right. are smaller average system sizes, but it's still, it seems like we have a sales and marketing problem in the U.S. I absolutely agree. So, I mean, again, part of this is giving consumers choice that we can meet all those different preferences and it's not one size fits all. I think we get more people in the funnel in that way. I think the other piece is giving consumers a better deal. Right. So the the loan products fundamentally have a lower cost of capital. Right. And so we can pass on more savings to consumers and give them a better deal. And when you give people a better deal, you'll get more people interested. It's it's very simple. Right. So that's another piece of it. And I think, you know, in general, the whole, you know, one of the big challenges for the industry is to um, is to really hone uh our sales capacity. And so I think increasingly we're seeing, you know, models around direct sales force that are, um, that will bring a lot of sales maturity and a lot of sales prowess to this industry that we just frankly haven't had, right? So I think we're going to continue to see uh, a split um, of sales and installation. And we're going to get people who are pure sales machines really driving growth in this space. And so arming them with products like our own will be, you know, key to them being able to sell uh, a value proposition to consumers around savings. Uh, and that wraps up the discussion. This was a really good conversation. And I just want to remind people that GTM Research covers this pretty closely. We have a solar finance report, which uh, people who are interested in the business side of this should pick up. You can get a deeper dive into how the financing options will evolve and what companies are involved um, and you know, where, what share solar loans will take up in the coming years. Um, we'll link to that in the podcast show notes. Uh, Sarah Ross is the CEO of SunGage Financial. She joined us from Boston. Sarah, really good to talk to you. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thanks. You brought a perspective that we haven't heard before. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Let's look at the State of the Union now. I'm not a scientist. Catherine's not a scientist. Jigger's not a scientist. But we can all appreciate the president's remarks about climate science in this week's State of the Union speech. Let's listen to them now. Now, one year doesn't make a trend, but this does. 14 of the 15 warmest years on record have all fallen in the first 15 years of this century. I've heard some folks try to dodge the evidence by saying they're not scientists, that we don't have enough information to act. Well, I'm not a scientist either. But you know what? I know a lot of really good scientists at NASA and at NOAA and at our major universities. And the best scientists in the world are all telling us that our activities are changing the climate. And if we don't act forcefully, we'll continue to see rising oceans longer, hotter heat waves, dangerous droughts and floods, and massive disruptions that can trigger greater migration and conflict and hunger around the globe. The Pentagon says that climate change poses immediate risks to our national security. We should act like it. So interestingly, that climate quote we just heard was stripped from the Republican version of Obama's speech posted to YouTube. Uh, I guess censorship is the purest form of climate denial. Along with getting feisty on climate, the president gloated a bit. Falling gasoline prices, a strong domestic oil and gas industry, 
and record renewable energy investments have come together to create the strongest environment for domestic energy since Obama was elected, uh, and arguably the decades before. So, Catherine, there weren't really any policy specifics in this speech. Uh, there were a lot elsewhere, but not really related to energy. What did you think of the, what the president said? Does, does he have reason to gloat here? Yeah. So uh, I, I was while my husband and I were watching it, we were thinking and remembering watching Clinton's State of the Unions where we would pray we would have done all this lobbying to get him to use the words energy and efficiency together. Um, and like, you know, listening for those words, this was amazing because right off the bat, he talked about being number one in wind power, solar power, you know, kept referring to companies like Google, eBay, Tesla. I mean, he really did talk about our successes. Um, there's a great uh, PBS uh, set of, you know, kind of word charts that go through, you know, how many times Clinton, Bush and Obama have mentioned the words climate and energy. And granted, a lot of this has has to do with what's happening right now and what's happened over the years with climate and energy. But Clinton mentioned climate four times, Bush twice, and Obama 11. So that was significant. And energy, Clinton mentioned it 17 times, Bush 46 times, and Obama 87 times. So it's a sign of the times um, that we're talking about climate and energy, but it's also a sign of what he's really pushing on. And he seemed to double down on EPA, um, making sure that we that we do regulate greenhouse gases and also doubling down on the COP21 Paris uh, potential agreement on climate. You know, a lot of folks sort of would rather stay out of politics than get in. I, you know, I think that this this speech that Obama made is really representative of the game of politics, which is that um, that's a lot of times people will say, well, it's such a good idea. Why don't Republicans just fold and, and just vote with the president and get some things passed? Well, they won't do it because they would lose seats in the House and Senate. I mean, you think about, you know, the Republicans right after the inauguration in 2008 basically met, the 15 of them met together and agreed together and made a pact that they would oppose everything that Obama was, you know, going to propose. And that's worked. I mean, now the Republicans own both the House and Senate. But you wouldn't know that by listening to this speech. The president, I thought, did a masterful job of actually, you know, um, showing and displaying confidence and basically putting the ball back in the Republicans' court and saying, look, I've like, you know, put my best foot forward. Now you guys prove to me you can govern. And I just think that for people like me who enjoy the game of politics, this was a great move in the game of politics. Yeah, and interestingly, he didn't say, here are the 10 things I want you guys to get done. The things that he mentioned that really have legislative fixes, like the infrastructure issue, which, you know, the surface transportation bill is going to come up this spring. Um, that is something that I actually think they could come to some pretty strong agreement on. So there, it was much more of a values-based and, as you said, like a political posturing than it was about here are the six things that Congress has to do in order for me to meet my goals. He, he's basically said, look, I've got all this executive authority that I'm going to use and then the stuff that we can do together, let's do together. So the infrastructure bill, interesting that, that you bring that up. I want to talk about how Obama used that to pivot away from Keystone XL. Obviously, the details of the infrastructure bill were very light, but it was one of the only specifics that he outlined in terms of priorities coming up. Uh, and, and he said, let's not focus on this one pipeline, meaning Keystone XL, which he's threatened to veto if a bill approving it comes out of Congress. Let's focus on this broad infrastructure bill to create jobs. Was that effective? And uh, is that a 
potential political bargaining chip in any way or just a rhetorical tool? Oh, no, I think it's really important to everybody. Everybody's got roads. Um, everybody has infrastructure. So, you know, Keystone will affect you know a certain segment, but infrastructure is so broad and there's so many different ways you can cover it. Uh, I think you can definitely get much more bipartisan support and everybody wants to do it. Yeah, I think that's true logically. But I think that you know, look, I think the reason the Keystone bill is being, you know, um, adjudicated and um, they just, you know, had that amendment that passed and all that stuff was that um, because this is a great way to score political points. I mean, Carly Fiorina was on TV the whole time, you know, basically saying on every broadcast that would listen to her that um, the Keystone Pipeline was jobs. Even like, you know, Joni Ernst like talked about the Keystone Pipeline, even though it was like 35 jobs total. The president has outlined a number of priorities on clean tech over the years. You know, I'm wondering if the president should have outlined more specifics here. Was there anything that either of you wanted to hear that you didn't? No, honestly, if he gets specific, it just puts a target on it as something that Congress doesn't want to do. I mean, he has a Congress that's all Republican. So, I mean, they need to figure out what they can do. I think there's some opportunities to do some things in energy policy that could be good um, and in tax policy that could be good. But if he says what he wants, they're going to go against those things. Yeah, I mean, this this speech showed me for the first time in the Obama presidency that he actually understands politics. Like literally the first time he's given a speech where he's like, you know what? I'm a political animal that's part of a larger movement other than myself, and the power of my good ideas is not enough to just pass something. I thought this was a very strategic speech, and he deliberately didn't put details in there because he knows that that would not be in his best interest. He would score points, but it wouldn't actually move the ball. Yeah, I agree. On a political level, the president was successful in stepping back and saying, look at all these positive changes in the energy market since I uh, became president in terms of deficit reduction, job creation, energy production. We've surpassed the multi-year goals that Republicans set out in the 2012 primaries and general election. And I think Obama tried to have a little fun by uh, poking at the naysayers and trying to outline some of those successes. Again, I, I think it would be wrong to give Obama too much credit in a lot of these areas in energy, but uh, certainly on a political level, something that he can step back and claim a success. But can I just say that I think the solar industry should be patting itself on the back in a huge way. I mean, you're talking about a president who talked about us installing solar, you know, once every four minutes last year. This time it was in three weeks, you know, we even we installed more solar than we did in all of 2008. I mean, we basically came back from Solyndra, which the president should have never abandoned us after Solyndra, but he did. And we came back and became a featured part of two uh, State of the Union addresses. Yes. And... GTM researchers' stats were part of those featured comments, so a pat on the back to our researchers, too, for putting together that data. But I absolutely agree. I mean, the framing here was critical, and it, it shows how strong the solar industry has become domestically. And I think that's a good segue into our third topic, because we're going to finish up the show here by talking about solar jobs, which was once a niche part of the energy economy and now has become one of the more prominent areas so the Solar Foundation released its new solar census, showing that one out of every 78 jobs created in America last year were related to the solar industry. 
uh, including both direct and indirect jobs. And the solar industry actually created 50% more direct jobs than the oil and gas extraction and the pipeline construction industries, with 31,000 new people entering the solar workforce. As we've discussed on the show before, diversity is definitely a challenge long term. It's, it is unclear whether the growth will sustain without the federal tax credit as a driver. Um, but let's talk about the uh, the findings in the report here. Jiggery, not surprising that solar added so many jobs last year, but uh, wondering if anything jumped out to you as surprising beyond the top level figures themselves. Well, I think it's really important for folks to really pour through the data. Um, what was really fascinating to me is that, you know, almost 60% of all the jobs that are in the solar industry are um, blue-collar jobs. Um, so these are folks who don't necessarily have to have a college degree and who are you know, getting paid a fair wage by doing something that they can turn into a meaningful career. Absolutely. Nine out of the ten jobs were in installation, which uh, broadens the workforce, certainly. And those are jobs that will not move out of the country. Uh, and I, that's a political talking point, messaging point, but it's absolutely true and something I think the solar industry has tried to rally around. Uh, interestingly, Solar City added 4,000 new jobs in 2014. That was a stat that jumped out at me. I didn't realize before I read the report. And uh, to put that into perspective, Germany's entire solar industry across all companies lost 5,000 solar workers the year before. And you know, so Solar City, one company basically made up for the 5,000 loss in Germany, and it will hire more than 4,000, possibly upwards of 5,000 this year. Uh, extraordinary. Yeah, one thing that uh, I noticed was that um, while uh, women, the percentage of women and uh, minorities in solar increased, it's still pretty low. For example, African-Americans at 6%, and that's less than half of what it is in the regular rest of the workforce. So my sense is that while we're kind of on the right track moving up, that um, the solar industry has to be much more intentional um, in order to internalize hiring of women and minorities more and, and expand more than, than, say, the grid alternatives model, which is really carrying a lot of those ideas forward. Women represent nearly 50% of the workforce, and they only represent just under 18% of employment in the solar industry. African Americans are around 12% of the workforce, and they only represent about 6.5% of the uh, solar em employment. Uh, Asians and Latinos, we saw growth in employment there, and they are a little bit more closely correlated to the percentage of the U.S. workforce broadly, but certainly when it comes to hiring women's in Afri women and African Americans, we could do a lot more. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I agree with all of those sentiments, but I do want to make sure we're clear about the fact that we are ahead of where the oil and gas industry are. We're ahead of where many of the, old, the traditional uh, fossil fuel industry folks are. So to suggest that we're behind them is wrong. Um, I think we're working on it um, tirelessly. The other thing I would say is is a good thing about our industry is that many of the folks in those minority categories, whether it's women or um, or Latinos or African Americans, are actually in management positions in our industry, um, and not just you know um, in the blue collar workforce. So there are around ten million oil and gas workers, direct and indirect, in the U.S. Um, across many different sectors. So the solar industry has 
a ways to catch up with that sector. But looking at coal, there are only around 97,000 coal jobs in the country and 174,000 solar jobs. So we have almost doubled coal jobs. We'll probably have about 210,000 jobs in the industry uh, by next year. The coal industry has so much power politically. Will the solar industry be able to do the same thing given this remarkable growth? Well, you have to do two things. Follow the money and uh, see who's investing where and where their, where their donations are going. But also look at, you know, the Senate, ha- you know, every state has two senators. And if you look, you know, what that does is it means that states that are coal-based states and other fossil fuel-based states each get two senators. And they have, uh, like, they have a lot of power. Well, but not enough, but not enough power. I mean, the thing is that the reason we're winning so much now is because we stopped going after oil and gas. We've given oil and gas a complete pass. So all of those senators are now sort of indifferent to on our side. And the coal senators are the ones that are by themselves. And there's only maybe 14 of them. And those guys are getting crushed. I mean, you know, when you talk to people in the industry today, um, that are in the utility industry, they will readily acknowledge to you that coal is dead and dying. Um, and they do not believe that they are going to lift a finger to help the coal industry. Well, let's see how that plays out when the investment tax credit is up for uh, extension. Look, the bottom line, as Catherine said earlier, um, is that we don't, we don't pony up money. I mean, you know, our PACs are completely broke. Um, you know, most people say, well, you know, the fact that we're hiring people is more than enough. And I keep telling folks when I meet them, if you're not writing a $200 check to the state legislator or your federal congressman or whoever it is that actually did something nice for you, then, you know, the next time you need something, they may not return your phone calls. And a lot of folks basically just sort of, you know, poo-poo that and say, well, I just hired three more people in their district. They're going to take my phone call. And, you know, money talks in this business. People are constantly raising money in Washington. That's all they do, you know, every day from like 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. Another reason why Solar City has beefed up its uh, policy team and why Lyndon Rive on this podcast called out Vivint and some other competitors for not putting the financial resources behind uh, the political push. All right, folks, that's the end of the show. We will wrap up by telling you something you do not know, and Catherine Hamilton gets the first shot at it this week. Hey, so first of all, I have to say, we got, I got a call from a listener who said that you always call on me first for this. Oh, it's just true. I wonder right, why. Jigger, you get to go first. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely true, and I, I do a little chuckle every time Stephen like, feigns that he actually like is choosing between us. <laughs> all right, Jigger, you go first. Well, I just wanted to point out that, um, you know, billionaire Jeff Green um, made a lot of money on the subprime mortgage and went to Davos and today basically said that um, Americans need to get by on fewer things. Um, and, you know, he, he actually flew to Davos in his private jet with his entire family and two nannies. That is the problem I have with a lot of uh, intellectuals and policymakers that push sustainability and social change. They just do not practice what they're talking about. But on a brighter note, Davos, I think, has um, put climate change back on the agenda. Al Gore and uh, Farrell, I think, got together to say that they're doing another round of live Earth concerts. Do those concerts really make a difference? Do you care much about them? I do. I, you know, it's not my expertise, but this is, this goes back to a theme that we've talked about before. I think the arts 
play a huge role in the solar industry winning. I think it's not just about the raw numbers and the raw megawatts. It's also us, you know, going into the community and figuring out the hearts and minds piece. Fair yeah, point. you got to continue to get the youth involved. Uh, Catherine, before you go on to yours, did this caller call just specifically to say that I call on you every single time for this last segment? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah, I think one of our listeners should do a survey of all the different podcasts and how many times Catherine was picked first. And I can tell you, I think I only was picked first twice. <laughs> Good to know that our listeners are really paying attention. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to talk about Keystone, but not Keystone, really, about this yesterday, this absolute circus on the floor of the Senate about climate change. It was hilarious and fell down in a bunch of different ways. So Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island um, offered an amendment that basically said climate change is not a hoax. And that was it. And it was it was a play on, you know, Inhofe had written this, you know, the greatest hoax is climate change. Well, Inhofe actually voted for this amendment. Ninety eight to one. This amendment passed. Uh, only Wicker from Mississippi from voted Mississippi, against it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, of course, Inhofe said, you know, the hoax is that we're arrogant enough to think that we actually do change the climate. But uh, but it won. So it's it was, that was kind of interesting. There were a couple of other amendments that came close, like uh, Brian Schatz from Hawaii, who, you know, he was the one that did the, like the all nighter climate debate. He his amendment said climate change is a real and human activity that's you know, significantly that real and human activity significantly contributes to climate change. And he actually got um, five Republicans to join him. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Kelly Ayotte from New Hampshire, who is a rising star, by the way, Lamar Alexander from Tennessee and Mark Kirk from Illinois, who previously had said climate change is awesome because Greenland is getting green again, Um, (laughs) uh, which is, you know, one of those like, oh, really? And then Susan Collins from Maine also. So 50 to 49 sounds like a win, but it really isn't because Everything takes 60 votes these days. Um, then there was another amendment that Hoven got more votes on because he took out the word significantly. So there was, but the, the cool thing is that there was a ton of discussion about climate change. So a lot of people are on record. Now some of what they're saying is very mushy. Um, but they're talking about it. And while everything's going to be, they know this bill is going to be vetoed, this gives them a platform to do that. Yeah, can I just give a shout out to Sheldon Whitehouse, who has yeah. like given a speech about climate every week on the Senate floor and has carefully laid out the scientific arguments. And I, I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah. All right, I'm going to talk about EVs really quickly, and I have two corrections and updates. Um, so Jigger mentioned the total cost of ownership being lower, often lower for EVs. And a couple of days later, one of our listeners, Benjamin Bunker, tweeted out a story to me um, showing that Tesla owners were facing higher costs due to repair issues. And the, the problem is that Tesla uses a mostly aluminum body, and that makes the, the car lighter, but, uh, of course, harder to repair. And so Green Car Reports had this really good cataloging of what customers are paying for their basic repairs, and they're you know, often tens of thousands of dollars, and aluminum is not as easy to mold and put back into place as steel. And a shop owner interviewed said that repairing a Model S can cost double a regular vehicle. So, um, so depending on the vehicle, the cost of, total cost of ownership isn't always lower for an EV owner. Uh, so I also have a correction for – I cited data from Inside EVs uh, that reported that Tesla sales beat Leaf sales in December. And Matthew Klippenstein, another EV expert, pointed out to me that the numbers appear 
to be made up from inside EVs. In fact, many people have guessed at the number because Tesla hasn't released it. So they're all just estimates of how many uh, EVs Tesla sold in December, and we're not going to know the official numbers for months. So we don't really know if uh, Tesla beat out the Nissan Leaf and other cars. Uh, so thank you so much to our listeners for both of those resources and being so attentive. And next time, Catherine doesn't get to go first as well, <laughs> and something you may not know. So, total co- speaking of total cost of ownership, what is the total cost of ownership for this podcast? None. Well, you, I guess you did pay for the mobile phone or computer, but we give you this show for free, and we hope you feel some sense of investment in it. So help us spread the show further and push us out on all your social media networks. Tell your colleagues, your customers, your enemies, your friends, anyone at all, and we'll give them the same deal that we gave you, a free show nearly every week. And that's all for this week. You can uh, catch us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio, and of course follow all of us on Twitter. Uh, Thank you to my wonderful co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton. Have a wonderful week. Thanks, you too. And we need new comments on iTunes. They're They're sort of stale, so we need some new ones. Jigger, you have a great week yourself. Thanks. With uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next week. Music.